Hey there, welcome back in to Talking Catholic with David O'Gray. I am David O'Gray and I'm going to give a short talk here on what I call the six proofs, the six proofs that the whole Eucharist is what the Catholic Church teaches that it is. And I think these proofs are so compelling that if you are not a Catholic, you will have no reason not to become a Catholic after you hear these six proofs. And I will begin right after this eight second introduction to Talking Catholic, which eight seconds, I'm telling you, is just enough time for you to click like, for you to rate, for you to subscribe, and for you to share. And I hope you do. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. I'll see you on the other side. All right. So the first, um, the first proof is what I call Old Testament fulfillment. On the night before God delivered his people out of Egypt, he issued them a command that he called a perpetual command, meaning that it was a command that was to last forever, is per a perpetual command. I mean, it doesn't have an expiration date, okay? The command I'm speaking of can be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 14. And it reads that, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all of your generations. You shall observe it as an ordinance forever. In Hebrew, there are two words that you want to pay specific attention to here. The first word is the word generations, which in the Hebrew is, pr is pronounced door, that is door. Um, now, this word door is typically used to apply to specific generations of people, such as in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says that these are the generations of Noah. A specific generation. That's it. Cut and dry. Or in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, it says, and Joseph died, and all of his brethren, brethren and all of that generation that's it, a specific generation he's speaking to here. But in some instances, especially in regard to covenants and promises, God uses the word door to establish a perpetuality of the issuance of his word. Such as in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, it says, And I will establish my covenant between me and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And again, in chapter 17, verse nine, God says, and God said unto Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And again, here in the Passover command, which reads again, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all of your generations. Observe it as an ordinance forever. All right. Now, within this command, God specifies exactly how they are to celebrate this Passover feast. There's a, a number of components here, mainly uh, one is that eating the roasted flesh of an unblemished lamb. Okay. Um, that has been sacrificed and taking the blood of that lamb and pouring it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their homes where the lamb will be eaten. Now, 
There, there are some other components here. Like I said, those are the, the essential two. But go ahead and read that verse so you get, get more familiar with this perpetual command because it is a command and we should be doing it. There's there's no option here. It's a command. We should be doing it. Um, now, the second word to pay attention to is the word forever, which in the Hebrew is pronounced olam, olam, which means forever, perpetual, and always. In the Greek, um, the uh, uh, the, the word that is equal to this is anemino, and we'll get to that later. That's anemino in Greek. Now, there are some instances where God says that things will not be olam, such as in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. He says, my spirit shall not be with you, olam, always. But in this instance of the Passover command God issues, he says, you shall observe it as an ordinance, olam, forever. Now, if God is not a liar, and if his word does not return back void, then we should be able to look around the world somewhere and find his people eating the flesh of an unblemished lamb to celebrate the Passover of the Jews coming out of Egypt. It is a command. We should be able to find it somewhere. Unfortunately, since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we can't find it with the Jews because they've been able, because the temple's destroyed, they've been unable to celebrate the Passover feast as it was prescribed by God in the Torah. Um, the Seder feast that they celebrate today is a substitution celebration and does not fulfill the command. It just doesn't. Um, the Muslims, um, they claim to be the seed of Abraham, but they don't even have an altar to perform sacrifices. If we look at the Protestants, all of their multiple denominations, thousands of them throughout the world, uh, we can't find one. I mean, the, the, uh, most of them claim to have something that they call an altar. They have what's called an altar call. But on the altar, we don't see a sacrifice. So it's not even a real altar. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there's no sacrifice. And they, they don't even claim to have a sacrament in which they purport to eat the flesh of an actual unblemished lamb. Okay. Uh, uh, they do have communion celebrations where they, where they claim to uh, do some things memorial of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that. But we look around the world, we can't really find anyone actually obeying this command from Exodus 12, 14. Rather, it is only in the Catholic Church where we, we can, where, um, that we can find uh, that every, on every day of the week, except on Good Friday, and most notably on Pash Sunday, Pash Sunday, which is probably called Easter, it's where we can find a priest at the altar offering to God's people the Lamb of God and the blood of the Lamb. But how do we know that what the Catholics are doing is a fulfillment of God's perpetual command from Exodus 12, 14? Well, because Jesus is God, he, he's God from light, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And... Jesus said no word and performed no act that the Father did not give him to speak or to do. He is the only one who had the authority to fulfill the perpetual command that God gave to the Jews. And it turned out that Jesus fulfilled it in himself. On the same night that the Jews were uh, Jews throughout the world, no, the world at that time, they returned to Jerusalem and in obedience uh, to the command from Exodus 12, 14, they returned um, for, the, for the Passover memorial feast. And on that same night, Jesus is found in the upper room with his disciples saying, I have 
eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. About the bread, he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. Again, the Greek word here is for memory is anemino, okay? Which again, like the command that we saw in Exodus means perpetual weight. So Jesus is fulfilling the Passover command here in the language nearly identical to the original Passover command. And he is also, um, and he also, by calling the bread his own flesh. And he's able to do this because he is the Lamb of God. He says, this is, eat this. Um, and he, he essentially saying, he's, he's saying, eat this Lamb of God, this unblemished Lamb of God. And he's pointing to himself in doing so. And he essentially, he's essentially saying here, your fathers ate the sacrifice unblemished lamb from their flock. But now I say to you, I am the unblemished lamb that will be sacrificed for you. Likewise, in the fulfillment of the blood of the lamb, he says, This chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And at no point when Jesus is offering these words of consecration at the Passover feast and he's fulfilling the command in himself, at no point does he turn to his disciples and say that he's speaking in a parable or that he's speaking symbolically. Oh. So, so this is the first proof of the Holy Eucharist, that it is an argument out of necessity, basically asking what happened to the command from Exodus that God said was forever. The Jews are unable to be obedient to now, and the only place that we can find it and fulfilled through Jesus Christ is at the Catholic Mass. That Jesus is the lamb that we eat. And rather than taking the blood of the lamb and putting it on the outside of our physical home or a priest pouring it on the foot of the altar, we take the blood of Christ into our own temples. Not the outside of our home, but into our temples. Okay, And in doing so, the promise remains the same. That we are passed over. We are given eternal life. Now, the second proof is what I call association with reality. Despite the fact that Jesus never says that he is just being symbolic or was given a parable, some people like to argue that he was. But one proof that Jesus was not speaking in a parable or speaking symbolically or whatever is found right there in um, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 60 through 62. Jesus' own disciples at this time, they were struggling with Jesus teaching that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood for eternal life, as they ought. Because as, as Jews, they, they knew it was, it was a sin for, for them to eat human flesh or to drink blood. It was a sin. The text says, Then many of his disciples who were listening said, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? Accepted it means, again, they, they could not accept it because to do so would be a sin as far as what they, they were hearing with their natural ears. Okay, um, Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, get this, he says, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to, to, to where he was before? Now, seeing his own disciples struggle with his teaching, Jesus at this moment could have backed down 
and told them that he was just speaking in a parable or that he was just speaking allegorically or symbolically. But he doesn't do that. Rather, he compares this teaching with a real event, his coming ascension to heaven. Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Imagine if a man told a woman who he, who he loved that, um, yes, I love you and I want to show you how much I love you. And he says, and he offers up this example. Um, he, he pulls out an, an empty teapot and he pours the, the fake tea into a teacup and then he drinks it. And then he says, that's how much I love you. In that instance, he would be comparing something real with something not real, right? His love, which is real, with something not real, the fake tea. He'd be comparing something true with something fake, right? Jesus does not do that, right? Rather, he compares something real, right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood for eternal life, this teaching with something that he knows will happen in the future, his ascension, to describe how real this teaching is. Does, does this shock you? Right. So that's the second proof, um, association with reality. The third proof is what I call no compromise. Let's stay in John 6. At the, at the end of John 6, verses 66 through 68, it says many of Jesus' disciples actually did walk away from him over this teaching. They just could not reconcile Jesus asking them to sin, right? As Jews, they didn't understand that he was fulfilling that commandment himself. And Jesus, his whole three-year ministry had really fallen apart just over this one teaching. Most of the disciples just got up and left, right? But rather than chase after his disciples and tell them that, no, I'm just, I'm just being symbolic. Or I'm, I'm speaking allegorically. Jesus doubled down and he looks at his apostles and asks them, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what Peter understood was that if Jesus had all the power to make dead people rise, to turn water into wine and to do so many other miracles what is so hard or what is so unbelievable about making himself consumable this leads us to the fourth proof and it's called um the proof um, of um, providence or, or prefigurements the idea of um, of a god that we should eat should not be that hard, right? Especially in the case of Jesus, because Jesus had always been consumable in a sense. He was born in an animal feeding trough. He is the Word of God. And Jews always believed that the written Word of God was edible. In fact, Jews always believed um, this. Um, uh, it's exemplified in what they call the, the teflon or flatteries, which is a small... Um, black box, leather black box um, that they either wear on their forehead or on their wrist. And this leather box, um, it contains um, a scroll of parchment inscribed with verses from the Torah that they wrap up with a string inside this box. And 
they believe that all of that, the leather, the parchment, and the string are things that they can eat. They, they think they believe it's consumable. And it is. They, they, those, they, all, these, all those things can be digested. So the word of God is edible. The showbread, which sat before the presence of God, the Ark of Covenant in the temple, the Jews believed had sacred character. The showbread of the Jews was nothing less than a prefigurement of the whole Eucharist and of Eucharistic adoration that we find in the Catholic Church today. The Egyptians, we're speaking of providence, um, the Egyptians believed that their sun god Ra was edible and that um, they ate him in the form of a piece of bread in the shape of the sun. And that's why Egyptians very early on were the easiest people um, that the missionaries found that were able to convert to Catholicism because Egyptians already knew this about the sacrament to the Holy Eucharist. They already believed in the idea of eating God, right? Eve, she, she believed that she could eat the tree and become like God. But today we do eat Jesus who is life itself. And we do become like God, right? So that's the fourth proof. Um, God's providence and this prefiguring of bread crumbs. And there are a lot more examples we can go to. But those, those are just, you know, just a few of, of the, I think, are some of the strongest ones. Now, the fifth proof is the proof I call non-contradiction. From Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, repeating exact same words of consecration that Jesus did at his last Passover meal. That the bread is his body and the chalice is his blood. That this is that this memorial feast is a fulfillment of the perpetual command, um, Passover command from Exodus 12:14, is a point that Paul reinforces here in these verses, in saying that for often as you eat this bread and drink this chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Alright. So we see all the language of perpetuality and um, of, of door and of animal right there in, in, in Paul in Paul's um, Paul's writing. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, who around the year 107 A.D. he wrote, "They abstain from the Holy Eucharist and from public offices because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins." In which the Father in his goodness raised again from the dead. And for this cause, contradicting the gift of God, they die in their disputes. But much better would it be for them to receive it, that they might one day rise through it. We see with Irenaeus, again, this non-contradiction of teaching throughout, throughout the centuries. Let's go to Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyons, who announced in... Um, who around in the year 141 AD wrote, He took from among creation that which is bread and gave thanks, saying, This is my body. The cup likewise, which is, a, which is from among the creation to which we belong, he confessed to be his blood. Gregory, Bishop of Nyssa, who wrote in the year 383 AD, The bread again is... At first, common bread, but when the mystery sanctified it, it is called and actually becomes the body of Christ. Yeah. And down through the centuries, 
It wouldn't be until around 500 years ago when it became popular to deny what Jesus himself taught and that he passed down to disciples and they passed down through generations that the consecrated bread and wine at mass truly do become his real body and blood, soul and divinity. It's fitting for us to ask then, who benefits when people deny the real presence of Christ Jesus in the world? Who benefits when people no longer believe this consistent teaching? That we can eat God and become like God. That we can truly consume his body into our body. Who benefits when his teaching is rejected? God or Satan? Who benefits when Christians are divided on this teaching? God or Satan? It's important to ask this question because something very demonic happened 500 years ago. And this teaching is at the center of it. In fact, every heresy that has come against the Catholic Church has either explicitly or implicitly Attacked um, this, attached this teaching on the sacraments of the whole, whole Eucharist. And that's very important for us to really add into this equation here. And all this leads to the sixth and final proof that is really amazing. If God wasn't merciful enough to give us Himself to eat so that we could be like Him over this past 2,000 years, if He, you know, if he wasn't merciful, if that wasn't mercy enough, look at this. God has confirmed this miracle that happens at every Mass by giving us miracles. When the wine turned into real perceivable blood, things we can perceive with our senses. There's been times when the bread actually turned into real perceivable flesh. I post the link below in the description so that you can go and read about all these miracles. They're amazing. This is the one teaching um, that I struggled a great deal with when I was coming into the faith. I knew it was possible for God to do this. I mean, God created the whole world, right? By his word, he created the entire universe. But it just didn't seem plausible, possible, but not plausible, that he would become something so common as bread and wine. And that he would be so indiscriminate of the sinners we are. That he had come to us miserable sinners in just this simple way. Every day at the Catholic Mass. It didn't seem plausible, right? And I guess what I was struggling with is that I was struggling with, I think what a lot of people do. Is that, okay, if I were God, I wouldn't do that, right? So the struggle is really with myself. And I thought if this teaching were really true, then why wasn't everyone Catholic? Because if this teaching is true, then what's wrong with the world? You can actually come to the Mass and actually see God in the flesh? Something seemed off, right? It seemed like everyone should be Catholic if this is true. Most of the world could not be stuck in that much darkness to reject this amazing truth. If it's real, right? So I struggled with this teaching, but then I encountered the Eucharistic miracles. And that sealed the deal for me. And I hope this and the other five proofs seal the deal for you as well. Belief in the real presence of Christ at the Holy Mass is the teaching that can unite the entire world, that can give us all peace and save us all. More people need to know about this and hear this and believe this. Catholics as well. Some of those have been born into the faith, but haven't really, really considered the reality of this teaching. So 
So this has been Talking Catholic with David O'Gray. Make sure you follow me on Facebook. And as always, I'm looking forward to your comments below. But until then, and until next time, blessings and shalom to you and to yours. Fool me, we can't get fooled again.